We finished John 13 last week, so we'll pick it up with verse 1 of John 14 today. Starting with verse 1, if you have your Bibles handy, I'm just reading verses 1 through 6, so not a long passage. Starting with verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Where I go, you know. And the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Jesus, it does not matter if we have heard that verse 10 million times. Lord, we need to hear it another time. We need to, Lord treasure it and let it settle deeper and deeper and deeper in our soul. Lord, even if we have come to you and been born again and now know that you are the way, the truth, and life, Lord, we pray that this would become even more real to us. For Lord, the days we're living in are days full of lies and untruth, and we need the truth to live for you in such a time as this. Lord, we pray that you would speak to every heart. We pray that you would open every eye. We pray, Lord, that you would soften every heart. Even if we came in here with soft hearts, they'd be softer still. We would be teachable. Lord, that you would teach us. Lord, I'm not teaching anyone. Lord, I'm being taught by this scripture just like everyone else. Lord, you're our shepherd. You're our teacher. Speak to us, Lord. Remove me from the equation that we would each hear from you, Jesus. We pray that we would leave here more in love with you, closer to you, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So picking up with where we left off, Judas, if you recall from chapter 13, Judas has now left the upper room. He's on his way to the chief priest to betray Jesus later that night. Jesus is now with the 11, not the 12. He's now with the 11. And he's now speaking only to a group of men that have fully put their faith and trust in him. Jesus is now exclusively gathered, and he's now instructing only those that belong to him. Do you know that you belong to Jesus? I mean, you know he bought you with a price. He's spending this precious amount of time knowing that he's soon going to be in agony, pouring into, serving, teaching, and preparing these men that will be foundational to the church. You have the prophets, you have the apostles, and Jesus as the chief cornerstone. He's pouring into these 11. They're going to be the sent ones. He had just told them that he would soon be leaving. And that they won't be able to follow him where he's going. Back in chapter 13. By the way, chapter breaks sometimes aren't so good for us. They're really... 
chapter breaks are nice to kind of find things, but there was no chapter break when John wrote this. This is flowing in the same moment, if you will. So chapter 13, you should get the chapter break out of your mind for just a second. I know they're good for us. They even help me. <laughs> I can break things up. But there's not a break here. He just told them he'd be leaving. They won't be able to follow. And they are deeply troubled by this. They're nervous. They're anxious. They're depressed about it. Now, but Peter, he's convinced, if you recall, that if it's death, he's ready for it. Jesus tells Peter, you're not nearly as ready as you think you are. Right? Before the rooster crows, you're going to die me three times. But they're all still troubled. They're all perplexed about where Jesus is going. Where is he going? And here in chapter 14, Jesus opens by calming their hearts. Do you ever need the Lord to calm your heart? I need it all the time. Lord, I'm too wound up. Calm me. Uh, But here, he's calming them both to his destination and the fact that they cannot follow him. But he tells them that they're going to eventually join him. They will be joining him. But he also makes it clear that aside from him, there is no, none, zero other ways to come to God the Father. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. I have no creative title. I'm just going with the truth as it's written right here on the page. Earlier in the evening, Jesus had taught the disciples how to humbly serve one another as he washed their feet. And in this lifetime, they were going to have to serve. They, They were on the front end of many of their ministries. But here in verse 1, he moves from this lifetime to eternity. Does a little little bit of a left turn. He moves to eternity. You see, someday, their service and our service will be over on this earth. We all know that, right? Someday our service is going to end. Jesus, he's going to take the opportunity here to strengthen their faith in Him, not in themselves, not in their abilities, in Him. They're going to need it for their individual journeys. You're going to need your faith strengthened for your individual journey. I'm needed for my individual journey. But He also tells them that a new home awaits them. And that when they've completed the mission Jesus is going to give them, they are going to inherit all a new place and a new home. Do you look forward to the new home? Are you getting tired of the old house? You know, like, I'm talking about your body now. You know, this house, this tent. Turn with me back to verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus knows that they're troubled about the prospect of him leaving. He's been taking care of them for three years. If he's gone, the miracles are gone. If he's gone, the healings are gone. If he's gone, lots of things are gone. If he's gone, sound teaching is gone. Now he knows they absolutely believe in him. He also knows that they believe in God. He also knows that they believe he came from God. I'll mention this from time to time. 
John's Gospel mentions the word believe, believe, believer nearly 100 times. I think it's 95 if I recall, but nearly 100 times, which is almost three times more than the other three Gospels combined. John speaks a ton about believe, not just John 3.16, all through the book of John is all about believe, 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 believe. And he's speaking to believers and still saying we need to believe. The word, not just um, believe, but he says believe in. You believe in God, believe also in me. Most of you probably believe that your car, well, some of you, if you have a bad car, you may not, this may not help you, but, but if, you, if, you, if you have any reliability, most of you believe that your car is going to get you home today. And the way you're going to prove that is not to stare at it. You're actually going to get in it and put the key in it or push the button now if you have that kind, whatever. The way you're going to show that you believe your car is going to get you, you're actually going to get in it. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying. If you believe in me, stay in me. Stay abiding in me. He's going to get into that even more in John chapter 15. He's also saying if you believe in God, you can believe in me because we're one and the same. He's going to get into that in this same chapter. We'll see that next week. But Jesus is also saying here, he's saying a lot of things with one statement. Do not waver in your belief. You believe in God, believe it. Don't waver in it. Don't waver in your belief in God the Father. Don't waver in your, in your belief for me, the Savior who's sent from God. And the next few days are going to really shake and attack their belief. Did you know that Satan would love to attack and shake your belief in God? He's probably sent things already in your lifetime that have caused... There's been a few times I got only a handful that I, can, I got really frustrated with the Lord. I mean, literally. And I knew that I was wrong in doing it, and it still welled up. You ever been there? And he will shake your... Satan will want to shake your belief in God. Well, I don't think that will happen. Give it time. And you're going to have to have your roots grow that much deeper. But understand, belief and faith in God, in Jesus, in the triune God, because he's saying God the Father and himself. Of course, the Spirit's present. Our faith in the triune God is often in the face of circumstances God's allowed. We talked about this with Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where God actually leads us into these valleys. Judas bailing is going to bum everyone out. They don't even know he's bailed yet. It's going to bum everyone out. But Judas bailing should not cause them to bail. Amen? Yes. Just because Judas bails, they shouldn't bail. Eyes on Jesus, not on Judas. Mm-hmm. There will be people, you ever been disappointed to see, man, oh, this Ravi Zacharias, or this such, such, such situation, you see these things, and you say, Lord, this really bums me out. But just because someone else falls away or turns away or whatever else, our eyes are on Jesus, amen? amen. Jesus, said, Jesus said, you don't believe in each other. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. Me and the Father are the only ones you can fixate on. Mm -hmm. Everybody else will fail you, could fail you, potentially, at some point. And Jesus soon leaving shouldn't 
weaken their faith. It shouldn't weaken their faith. We understand how it could, and they do get their faith weakened. I remember when Jesus rises, they, they don't even believe he rose. Women tell him, you're out of your minds. Their faith went, it didn't shipwreck, but it definitely took a dip. Amen? There's a difference. Your faith can take a dip at times. That doesn't mean it's shipwrecked. You need God to relift it. If it's taken a dip, say, Lord, I can tell my faith is a little weaker right now than it should be. The Holy Spirit will give you a check in your spirit that your faith is actually weaker right now, and you need to get back to the source. Amen? That's what the Lord is saying. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus leaving shouldn't weaken their faith. And he's about to explain why he's going to leave. And by the way, none of us understand all the things of the Lord. And the things that we cannot understand, or the things that Jesus has yet to communicate, shouldn't weaken our faith either. It shouldn't weaken our faith just because there's stuff that Jesus hasn't explained to us yet, or we can't understand. There's plenty of things we can't understand. As a matter of fact, it should actually strengthen our faith that he is so much above us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, Jesus is there. He sees their, their spirits taking a dip. They're troubled in their spirit. But he is patient to build up their faith, build up their spirit. And the same with us. They need their faith built up. The apostles themselves prayed in Luke 17, 5. The apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, increase my faith? I pray it all the time. I pray it a lot, actually. Lord, increase my faith. I, when I see a pure prayer in the Bible, one that I can remember, you know, these dads that can't remember this kid's school, you can remember this first. Lord, increase my faith. Anyone, even dads can remember this one, right? Increase my faith. Lord, increase our faith. And here they don't say that. They remain quiet at this point. They're just troubled, confused, perhaps quickly discouraged by, again, they're still brewing on the fact that Jesus is leaving. They don't know what that means. They don't know where it means. But what Jesus is about to say and what he's about to share will further strengthen this kind of discouragement that they suddenly have. He's going to comfort them. He's going to encourage. I talk about a lot of times, the word encourage means to give courage. When you encourage someone, you're giving them courage. You're giving them, oh, I can do this after all. And Jesus is going to encourage. He's going to build them up. And it's faith building and it's hope giving for them on this night of the Upper Room Discourse. But it's also faith building and hope giving for us to thousand years later, these words are immortal. It doesn't matter how many times you've read them, they can be fresh to your soul this morning. Let's look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. Some of your Bibles may say rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus, in his encouraging the disciples, lets them and lets us know something about his father and about their eternal destination that those that belong to God would not have known otherwise unless Jesus tells about it right here because no one else had ever described heaven like Jesus does right now. 
in my Father's house are many mansions. We don't have another verse prior to this that states what Jesus says in this way. Aren't you glad Jesus can tell us things that no one else... You want to know about heaven? Jesus can tell you. Amen. But he's only going to tell you what the Father says, tell him this, but not anymore. Sometimes we want more, right? Lord, can you roll out the whole amount of... No, no, no. This, how, this is how much I'm going to give you. It's enough to keep your faith in me and even build it more. The Father's house is what? The Father's house is heaven. Heaven is the Father's house. The whole of heaven is the Father's house. It's more glorious. It's more expansive than we can possibly imagine. It's unfathomable to us. Uh, the one part of the scriptures that tell us a, a good bit about heaven, but even still is just an inkling, is the book of Revelation. At least there's, it's not the only place. There's a few other places. But at least we get some viewpoints. But you know, Paul said he knew a man caught to the third heavens, probably himself, that he saw things that were indescribable and things he wasn't even allowed to come back and put in the scriptures. It's beyond, heaven is beyond our comprehension. And God just says, it's my house. It's the Father's house. Jesus says, oh, heaven, it's my Father's house. It may dwarf the universe for all we realize. We have no idea what dimension it's at. Where, we, we don't understand. We just know that it's where the throne room of God is. It's where the tabernacle and temple of God is. And it's where the saints of God are going to live for all eternity. The Greek word for house, this is going to be really deep, wait for it, is house. <laughs> so, um, it's not the Greek, but the meaning, uh, the Greek word is not house, uh, but the meaning for Greek word for house is the same as our English word, house, house, doesn't matter, uh, so it's a different Greek word, but the meaning is just house. Ninety-two times it's used in the New Testament. Then there's one other time it's used, same Greek word is used to say home, and one other time the Greek word is used to say household. Home, household, once each. House, 92 times in the New Testament. The Greek word for many means many, much, or great. So in the Greek it means many, much, great. Kind of all at the same time. Many, much, and great. And you think about uh, the mansions. You saw, they're many, they're much, and they're great. All at the same time. And many will be needed because there's many saints that have come to faith in Jesus from Abel, who was killed by Cain, for the first, the first believer in the Lord, all the way until whoever's going to be the, the last person born again today on earth, and if the Lord extends tomorrow and the next day, and every single person that comes to faith, the Lord is preparing a place for them. But there's probably many, many more that are in heaven. I, I personally believe, David said when his son died, uh, I cannot... The child cannot come to hit me, but I can go to the child. And I believe that millions upon millions upon millions with the infant mortality rate, abortion, just children that have died before the age of accountability, I believe that God in his manifold grace, they have been brought into the kingdom of God because they hadn't reached an accountable age to say no to the gospel. So there's probably many millions more that are also in heaven as well. And isn't that great, though, that when man means for evil, God would say, I will take them, those little babies, to himself. Uh, but lastly, uh, here, the New King James Version uh, uses the word mansion. Uh, in my Bible, it says, man, I'm reading from the New King James, uh, many mansions. Some of your Bibles may say rooms. 
Um, but mansion is the Greek word here. Uh, the Greek word means mansion, I should say. The word that's used here, it's only used, uh, this Greek word is only used twice in the entire New Testament. It's both by John and both in chapter 14. Here in the, um, in the second verse, the, word, the Greek word he used means mansion, the way we think of mansion, a large home. Uh, it means, in verse 23, abode or dwelling. Same Greek word, but it means the context is, what, um, is what's kind of uh, given the, in, uh, the inside of the word. But in verse 23, it'll mean abode or dwelling. But the mansion will be our abode and dwelling. And that is what Jesus is saying. Only, again, the word's only used twice in the entire New Testament. And he tells them, them in, he tells them, in my Father's house, or in heaven itself, are not many rooms, but many mansions, many dwelling places, many homes that'll be, will, that will be glorious. And Jesus says, if this were not the case, why would I have told you this? I don't lie to you like the world lies to you. We get lied to all the time. Um, news and you know, media and all kinds of stuff. Politicians, but Jesus said, if this wasn't the case, I wouldn't have said it. I tell you things that are true. He's going to get to that point uh, in uh, a very strong way in just a minute. And by the way, he does not say, in my father's house are many mansions and a few shacks. <laughs> you ever heard people say, I just, as long as I get a little shack in glory. You ever heard that statement? I've heard it too many times. There's no verse right, right. in the entire Bible that says you might get a shack in glory. I, if you'll not find the verse. What sometimes people mean by this is, how close can I live in the world and still find a small, tiny house in heaven? Wow. Okay. That's what a lot of times people are meaning. How, how, can I live just close enough to the world that God, I don't care if I barely slide in, I just need a little tiny house. I'm not a modern one, mind you, but a tiny house. And Jesus said, I don't offer tiny houses in heaven. I, it's either well done and good and faithful servant or depart from me, I never knew you. There's not another option. We'll talk about the exclusivity of Jesus in just a moment. But Jesus is saying, what he's saying is directly related to their future, their eternity, their reward. By finishing their course, he says, I am preparing a mansion for you. Look at verse 3. Um, in verse 3 he says, And if I go and prepare a place, prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's still leaving, but you can imagine there's a little bit of joy infusion here where he tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come and receive you to myself. That ought to make them a little happier. Of these mansions, I'm going to return to heaven. As Jesus said, I'm going to return to heaven. I'm going to return to my Father's house. And I'm going to be preparing for each of you. Remember he washed their feet individually? He could say to the eleven, to you, and one for you, and one for you, and one for you, and one for you, and on down the line. It's why there are many, because God looks at the souls that he has saved as individuals. Each soul matters. Many. He knows the name. He wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He knows you by name. He's preparing a place individually for everyone. Even though, we're going to get to this in just a second, we are a group as well. But he's washed each of the disciples' feet, and he will prepare each of them a place. Let me say that again. He's washed each of their feet, and he will prepare each of them 
a place. That's what he's saying. Now, as he's informed them before, he's used other... When we think about how God communicates truth to us, he will use a multitude of angles to get the point across. Let me give you an example. Jesus said, I am the shepherd, you are the sheep, right? He also says that we are trees that we're supposed to bear fruit. So, just like we're trees, we're also sheep. We're also little children, as he said last, by little children. Remember, he spoke to them as little children. We're little kids to God. We're trees that are supposed to bear fruit. We're sheep that have to be groomed and kept out of danger and kept from wolves and kept from things. But here he uses another viewpoint or another understanding that they would see, I believe, after the fact that they were not seeing that night. Things were going like this to them. It was, just, it was like, Dad's trying to remember the school, school address. Forget it. You know, uh, They could not see it. He's informed them before that they're sheep and, and he's the shepherd. The imagery here, though, is that he is the groom sent by the Father to betroth his bride, which he has already now done. Amen? Amen. He's already done. They just drank of the cup. When the marriage betrothal, they would take and they would each sip from the wine. They would betroth in marriage. He chose them, and we talked about this last week, like a bride, they chose him back. Because in betrothal, the bride could push the cup away. At the betrothal, when the wine cup is set before both the man and the woman in the Jewish tradition, and they were going to be betrothed in marriage, she could say no at the last minute and push it away, which Judas did in a sense. Obviously, he took it, but his heart wasn't there. But they have chosen Jesus back. He chose them, and they have chosen back. And he's going to prepare a place for them. And in the Jewish tradition, the son would leave the betrothal in place and go away for a time and build an extension for his bride to be at the father's house, at his father's house. So it would expand the father's house, and that place would be being made ready Then he would go and get the bride at an unannounced time or hour to bring her back to the marriage feast. Now you and I, we have one of two unannounced times coming for us to meet Jesus. Either the day of our death, which could be anything, heart attack, car accident, airplane, old age, COVID, whatever it is. Or the rapture of the church. I prefer number two. I admit that to you. It sounds like a better option, but we, so far no one in the history of the church has gotten option number two yet. But we're getting closer, at least from an hourglass standpoint, so we have at least possibility of seeing that in our lifetime. So there will be an unannounced Jesus coming to get all those that belong to him. But in the Galilean tradition, I talked about this in the prophecy series back in the fall, the groom would take the shofar, and the shofar is that ram's horn. Uh, you see it a lot in the Old Testament. It would take the shofar and blast the shofar deep in the night. It would almost always be here in the middle of the night. The shofar would be sounded by the, uh, by the groom himself. Does that ring any bells like a trumpet will sound? It sounds like a trumpet. So, and then he goes and gets the bride, and he, he blow the tr- uh, shofar, um, We talked about this last week as well, because Jesus says, uh, I will come again and receive you. 
we cannot take ourselves to heaven. We can't book a flight. We can't drive there. We can't take Elon Musk new, whatever it is that's going get, to get people to Mars or whatever. We can't do any of that. We can only be taken there. And the groom comes and takes his bride to the wedding feast. Now also in the Galilean tradition, I covered this again back in the Prophecy series in the fall, in the Galilean tradition, the bride was then put on a chair, there was poles on both sides of the chair, and she would be lifted up into the air. She was lifted up into the air. Does that sound like something familiar? And um, when she was lifted up into the air, it was the literal term was called flying the bride home. That was the literal term in the Galilean tradition was to fly the bride home and it was to take her to the wedding feast and on to her home with her husband. Now, Jesus is talking to them as individuals, but he's also talking to them as the eleven and they are the foundations of the church. The prophets, the apostles, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So when he's talking to them as a group now, he's talking to them as what? The bride. Just like the flock, if you say sheep, that's individual. The flock is everyone, all the sheep is the flock. The bride is all the church. We're all parts of the bride. And so he's speaking to them as a group as well. And he's speaking here of the rapture. Jesus, in my view, I mean, there's people that take issue with this. I believe he alluded to the rapture uh, in the Olive Discourse. Two will be standing, one will be gone, and one will be left. And, and, there's, and that's mentioned twice there in the Olivet Discourse. Here in the Upper Room Discourse, I believe in this statement, he does more than allude to the rapture. I believe he speaks directly to it, although it's not only about the rapture. Each person has an individual snatching away that, that is death if, you don't, if, you don't, uh, if you're not in the time period when, when the rapture of the church finally takes place. There will be an individual snatching away. And even when the rapture takes place, everyone's going to come out of the grave anyway, and all, all souls will meet in the clouds. So even still, by the way, let me do it. We're all going to be part of the rapture. It's whether you are coming out of the grave part of it, your soul already be in heaven, your body and your soul are joined together, and you meet him in the clouds. Isn't that great? When you look up at the clouds, I'll say, Lord, someday I'll be standing right there in those clouds with you. Whether it's in this lifetime or after I pass, I'm still going to get to stand there, and so will you if you don't, because he says, I will gather you. Same thing, pulling up and out to myself. Verse 5, that's exciting stuff, but look at, look, uh, I'm sorry, verse 4. Verse 4, and when uh, Jesus said, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. So Jesus follows all this by saying, basically, the place I came from is the place I'm returning to. Well, they know that was heaven. So he says, you guys know this, because he says, and where I go, you know. We thought they knew, but then we get to verse 5. Jesus, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? If Jesus was a teacher, he'd be like, you're a teacher, right? Yeah. You ever been there? You know, I, I thought the whole class knew this by now. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. We, have, we don't have a clue where you're going. Jesus is like, I told you where I'm from. I'm going back to where I'm from. But nevertheless, right. Thomas, no doubt the others, they're still thinking temp temporal. They're still thinking on the temporal plane. That's where he's at. 
He's not thinking eternal at this point. Remember Jesus switched gears to the eternal. Thomas is still thinking temporal. Where are you going? Is it Egypt? Is it India? Is it China? Is it Libya? Is it England? England didn't exist, but Tarshish did or whatever. Um, Maybe Jesus is going to build a kingdom in some other part of the world. And maybe he's going to come back and get them and take them to another part of the world. After all, there's a death threat on his life and things like that. If you're thinking temporally, all these things would make sense. They just didn't understand at this point. And in Luke chapter 18, when Jesus spoke of his coming suffering, his coming crucifixion, his death on the cross, they didn't understand then either. In Luke 18, 34, the disciples did not, it's very explicitly said here, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. I don't know why God hid certain things at certain times, and they just didn't understand. And on top of all this, it's not just that Thomas didn't understand. He was very bummed out that Jesus would be leaving. So they're kind of disoriented uh, altogether. If you've ever been there, you're at the same time, confused, sad, distraught, all at the same time, and then someone tries to tell you, hey, what day are we getting together? I'm like, I don't have a clue. Forgot what day it is, that kind of thing. These things won't be hidden for long. The cross won't be hidden. The Olive Discourse won't be hidden. The Upper Room won't be, dis, uh, won't be hidden. The Resurrection, what it means, won't be hidden. The Rapture won't be hidden. Paul will end up being the 12th Apostle added, even though they have Matthias uh, in there as well. Uh, and he'll write about the Rapture of the Church. He'll become one that's born out of time. But Thomas is like, Lord, if we don't know the location, how are we going to know? If you don't tell us the city, if you don't tell us the country you're talking about, you keep saying, you're going here, your father's house, but you're also leaving. It couldn't connect the dots. If we don't know the location, how are we going to know the way? And Jesus quickly simplifies everything when we get to verse 6 here. They'll soon understand what they couldn't grasp at the moment. This next statement, though, from Jesus is a level set. He's saying, of all the stuff you, I've already said, what you've understood, what you haven't understood, what you're perplexed about, what I'm about to say in verse 6, what Jesus is about to say in verse 6, is all they would need to know to stand firm for their entire lifetime and all you need to know critically, to stand firm in your faith with what he says in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me, our last verse. Jesus said to him, he doesn't tell him, Thomas, let's go back and discuss what my father's house is. Let's go back and discuss, when I said I'm leaving, do you not understand the context? No, all, this, all he says to him, he says to him, I am the way and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, Jesus knew that they were going to be confused, and he knew that he would use their confusion to say, against all the confusion you have, and in fact, all the confusion of this entire world, I give you verse 6. How about that? That's what Jesus, to everything that you don't understand, I give you verse 6. And by the way, that's enough for me, but it's not enough for a lot of other people, is it? Is it enough for you? Is verse 6 enough for you? Yes. Where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He takes, as if it, he takes kind of a big step back, back to the basics of what they have believed in. Yes. 
More importantly, who they have believed in. Amen? It's a who we have believed in. But he's told them to follow him because his words are truth, his words are life, and in fact they are eternal life, and they're eternal life only in him. Everybody else can't offer you another second, much less eternal life. And here he stops their head scratching, their confusion, with an emphatic and comprehensive statement of his deity, of his authority, and his place above any and all others. If you're taking notes, this is now the sixth I am statement in the book of John. There are seven. Traditionally, they always call seven. I personally, I'm not, I, I didn't get to start the tradition of calling it the seven I am statements, but when Jesus says I am, that's a big one to me, but that's just me. You know, that's not considered one of the seven I am statements because all the I am's are I am, and he gives some title with that. But he remembers this before Moses was I am. That's is quite the statement in and of itself. But these are the seven I am's, and this makes number six. Jesus is not a way to eternal life. He is not an element of truth. He is not some aspect of life. He is the way, the truth, the life. Do you believe this? Even if you're saved, do you still believe it? Do you believe it more now than last week? Yes, 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 yes. Or than 10 years ago if you've been saved long enough? Is his life in you reflecting this belief? Is it reflecting in your life? I am so glad that daily he is my way, my truth, my life. Not just that saved me 27 years ago this very month, but today he's my way, my truth, and my life. I get instructions constantly from him. How about you? He's the reason I'm alive. I'm glad I have an earthly father. My dad's still alive. He's 83 years old, and I'm glad he's still with us. But I'm glad I have a heavenly father. How about you? And that came through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Many people believe that Jesus was a good teacher. He was a good man. He was a prophet. He was an honest man. He was a man of peace. And some will even say he contributed to the betterment of humanity. Then they'll still. Then they'll say, "Well, they also contributed to wars." And all, but other than that, it's still, you know. Many people, and I bet you've met some. You've even had conversations with some. They will say Jesus was a very good man and a very good religious teacher. His teachings are beneficial. He spoke lots of truth. But they would also add, he is not better. He's just equal to many other religious teachers and philosophers. That's what many people believe. But compare these human opinions to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, what Jesus is saying here eliminates any other options, doesn't it? And if you ask these same individuals about heaven, let's ask about heaven. If you're having a conversation, uh, if they believe in heaven at all or some future paradise, and if you ask them, is Jesus the only way to get to heaven? Or if you ask them about God, is Jesus the only way to get to God? Many of these same individuals say, no, he's not. Jesus is a, he's a good way. He's an, he's an absolute one of the ways, but he's not the only way. He's not the only way to heaven. He's not the only way to God, whatever their view of God is. 
Because most of those same people say, because in fact, there's lots of different paths, and all the different paths lead up the mountain, some lead the backside of the mountain, some lead this side. All the different paths lead up to a God, and even if it's different gods, it's kind of like the same God. Now, mind you, these same individuals, and I'm not putting them down at all. I'm not putting them down. I've had loving conversations with people about these things. The Lord came for them just like he came for us. I'm not putting them down. I'm simply passing along. This is very common thinking. You've heard it yourself. I've had lots of personal conversations with people who've told me this, and good conversations. I mean, at least they were willing to listen and engage with me, but they've flat out told me this is what they believe, that all these different roads and different paths that Jesus is a good, he, I know, he's a good teacher, but he's not the only way. That's cutting out an awful lot of religions. But those that believe that many roads and many paths believe, lead to heaven almost always will assert or agree with you that they'll, they'll still say Jesus was good and that he was honest. Which presents a problem for verse 6, right? Because if he's not the only way, he's not honest. Jesus is honest, of course. His self-witness has to be true if he's honest. And by the way, not to mention, when you think about Jesus, his thousands upon thousands of miracles, thousands of people he healed, raised people from the dead, ultimately rose himself from the dead, that already takes him to a different place than every other person that ever lived. Amen? That already separates him from Muhammad and Confucius and Buddha and all the other people that have ever lived. To his witness, if he's really honest, and he says he is the way, the truth, and life, anything less than true would be dishonest, and thereby it would be manipulative or some false motive. But Jesus didn't have a false motive. He had a saving the souls of mankind motive. That's why he's telling us the truth, because if we don't get the truth, we can't get saved. Amen? Amen. He, has to be, he has to level with us. He's like, you need to know that I am the way, the truth, and the life. You need to know this, because somebody will come along and Satan will say, yeah, you can go that route. And I remember when we were, in, um, we were ministering in the juvenile detention center, uh, I remember talking to some uh, guys. They were, they were debating this in themselves whether they want to become Christian or Muslim. And they flat out told me one of the reasons why Islam attracted them was attracted them is they could still be tough and mean. <laughs> that was what they said. And I couldn't argue the point because they could still have a tough exterior. They just had to follow the laws of Islam. They could still smite their enemy if their enemy rose up against them. Whereas Jesus says, you're going to have to turn your cheek. It wasn't as appealing. But do you want the truth or do you want something that will lead you to hell? That's the choice that everyone is given. Now, um, aside from the fact that many people no longer have an issue with dishonesty. In this country, we love now dishonesty and lies. People live by it. We've become an increasingly untruthful society. Uh, Jesus didn't just tell us the truth. He told us he is the truth. He told us the truth about himself, about sin, about hell, about heaven, about judgment, about salvation, about forgiveness. Jesus always told the truth, but... He's saying even more than that, I am the truth. He's the true truth. What do I mean by that? Every now and then I'll say that. What does true truth mean? The true truth is that Jesus, the truth of Jesus is greater than the truth of gravity or mathematics. 
Those things are true, and they're actually created by God, but those things, to know about how gravity works, it, that's true, or to know that 2 plus 2 is 4, well, not in America anymore, but I mean, it, still, it still should be, um, that those things are true, but they're not saving truths. They're not heart-changing truths. No, through Jesus, he is the only way, the only way to life. He is the way not just to life, but eternal life and to the Father, which is a restored relationship that had been severed by our sins. Either Jesus is the truth, which then excludes everything else, and any other man-made religions, or nothing is truth, as evidenced by the state of this world where we instead, we try and, we, can, we, we now say we can create truth, our own truth, our own version of truth. Uh, Pilate asked Jesus, because the Romans had reached the same state, they were so pantheistic with their gods, and so idolatrous, and so self-centered, and so cynical as well, that when Pilate met Jesus, he knew that Jesus was honest, and he could tell he was different, and he said to Jesus, what is truth? Of course, he was looking at him. He was looking at the truth. The world, from the garden to Pilate, and then especially all the way to today, despises absolute truth. We hate absolute truths. Well, once you get saved, you don't hate absolute truth. You're, you're glad that you have come to have your eyes open, that absolute truth was necessary for our salvation. We needed an absolute Savior, not a maybe. Right? I saw a tweet this last week from a major U.S. bank. I have it, I had the picture, the tweet saved on my phone. It was in celebration of Pride Month. And they literally say in their tweet, live your truth. Live your truth. We now have corporate America telling people, just define what, whatever, you, whatever you define as truth. By the way, if everyone defined their own truth, it would be total chaos. Can you imagine that? If, well... If everyone's truth is equal, it, you would have total chaos. God says, no, I'm, someday you'll, you'll find out that my son was the only truth. Amen. Amen. Any self-created truth, no matter what it is, it isn't truth, and it can't give us life, it can't give us forgiveness, it can't give us heaven, it can't give us eternal life with the Father, only Jesus. We don't have to convince people of this, thankfully. It takes a lot of pressure off me. I don't have to convince people of this. I love what D.L. Moody said in the 1800s. I cannot convert men. I can only proclaim the gospel. That's it. That's it. I, don't have to, I don't have to convince you that this verse is powerful. I just have to present it. The Holy Spirit will convince a heart that it means exactly what it says. I'm so glad. I'm so grateful that 27 years ago, people reached out to me with the truth of the gospel. They didn't impress me. They weren't impressive people. One was girls cutting my hair, but they at least had truth and they extended to me. I received the truth. I personally came to believe in Jesus and I believe in him more now than I did 27 years ago. I believe in verse 6 more now than I did, I think I did yesterday. I've just continued. The roots, our roots can always grow deeper. I told the first service, I have these trees in my backyard that cause me way too much raking in the fall. And they just keep going deeper, and they keep going deeper, and more squirrels keep finding homes, and yes, they just keep getting, because the roots can grow, and that's what God wants to do with our faith. Amen? Amen. That's what he wants to do with the disciples. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that your son not only told us the truth that we needed to know about ourselves, about you, but Jesus, your son, is the way, 
the truth, and the life. And Lord, we are so grateful that even right now, as we are closing this service, you're preparing a place for us. And that trumpet's going to sound. And those of us who know you, Lord, are going to be gathered together in the clouds, whether we've already passed, whether we're still alive. Lord, we look forward to the day you bring us to the Father's house. You fly the bride home. But Lord, first, we had to believe in you. And Lord, we do believe in you. We believe in you now, and we want to believe in you more and more and more and more.